Welcome to the new healthcare economy where everyone wins for a change. Employers, consumers, primary care physicians, outcomes, shareholders, even our communities all win with costs dropping 20 to 60%. This unstoppable direct contracting movement bypasses the big middles with their crooked game boards, devious rule book, rigged dice, and purchased referees. I'm Rob Barshop, and I'm glad you're here. Not that y'all care, but what animates me to do all of these shows and to post about DPC and direct care so much? Well, number one, crime has plummeted 80% in a very tough neighborhood in the past 20 years surrounding a Rosen Hotel in Orlando, Florida. They created a homegrown direct care called Rosen Care, and they funded it. How? By bringing over $540 million to the bottom line of the Rosen Hotels by going direct, offering our whole direct ecosystem. And with that extra funding, they offered free post high school tuition for not only their employees who got through high school, so they get to pay for all their college, all their vocational school, all their post-college, so they might become a doctor. Well, Mr. Rosen will pay for all of that. And they will fully do that for the kids in the Tangelo Park School District. So they adopted basically the school district around them, which was a bottom quartile poverty drug using. In fact, the, the elementary school principal used to have to walk the grounds of the playground before school and pick up all the needles. So really tough area 20 years ago. Now these kids matriculate at the same rate as the wealthiest quartile kids from college, from post-college. So in the past, basically two or three out of a hundred were lucky to get out of the ghetto. Now they all get out and the, the gangs have dried up. Here's what interesting thing happened to Rosen is they got rid of all their debt, number one. And number two, their turnover is 14% in an industry of 85%. So in addition to the hard cost, 540 million in savings, there's soft costs like you don't have to constantly be hiring and recruiting in a super high turnover industry because people love working there. I'm gonna give you a, another case study is that our nation's number one employer is Walmart outside of the federal government. And they announced in March that all full-time and all part-time will have their books and online tuition paid for day one, okay? So that 500 million a year that they've committed to that is not a coincidence because Walmart saved double that, a billion, in 2019 and have every year because they use a direct contracting tactic called Centers of Excellence. Now, Centers of Excellence says you're going to go to Mayo Clinic for this, MD Anderson for that, Cleveland Clinic for this. So they're very precise about where they have their employees go for high acuity needs. And, and they have precision radiology they've added in and digital first health as well. And they bought MD Live. But so basically, what does that mean for Walmart? It means their turnover was at 70% before they announced this. Today, it looks like it's hovering right around 40%. Now, they're not at the 6% Costco's at or even lower for Amazon, but they're still looking at driving their turnover way down. So the soft cost savings of offering free college with our nation's second largest employer is impressive to me. That excites me and animates me. Should to you too, I guess. The opportunity is for employers to use this one-to-one -one ROI, which creeps up to four-to-one ROI using all nine tactics indirect that we've talked about in previous shows. If you use that to offer free healthcare, like Rosen has a $5 copay, so it's basically free. And 
all the gym and all the medical and all the wellness visits are on the clock there too. So you're earning wages. So free healthcare is another thing that kind of excites me. Free healthcare currently by the most recent poll I saw, which is WTW, was 31% of all corporations are offering free healthcare that do direct primary care. Well, based on the 25 million on our headcount from this show, it looks like that's about 8 million people that are getting free healthcare. I don't see Bernie Sanders jumping up and down about that, but I am excited about it as a free market guy. And if he knew about it, I'll bet he would too. So both sides, you know, conservative, libertarian, liberal, left, right, everybody's excited about free healthcare, right? Nobody is unexcited by that opportunity. Labor, management, everybody would love to see that happen. And it, it's paid for through these tactics, okay? So yes, free college, now 2 million Walmart partners, really uh, about a million two in America, but we're talking about potentially 5,000 Rosen Hotel employees and thousands of kids because now Rosen has adopted a much larger school district called Paramar. So we're talking about hundreds and thousands of lives, millions of lives changing because of free college tuition funded by direct care savings, okay? Now, the last piece I'll talk about that is actually animating me as much as all of this good news above is all of these payroll deductions stop if you now have free health care, right? So we're, again, we're talking about seven to eight million people are seeing their first true raise in decades because they no longer have to provide a premium, a copay, or deductible, okay? It's all free. The trickle effect in buying local is tens of millions per thousand employees and billions per 50,000 employees. And I just told you that we have 7.7 .7 million. So if you Google multiplier effect on an economic stimulus, you'll see that Every time the government gives us like they did in the COVID, 1350 bucks, it's really 26 or 2700 It's a double 2x effect because there's what's called a multiplier effect on any money that's a stimulus. And I just told you we're talking about billions in stimulus and really tens of billions of in stimulus if this is proving out my economic theory here. All right. So that's what animates me, not to mention the countless deeply moving personal stories of lives improved. We just spoke with a doctor who basically had saved her life going DPC instead of being in the rat race. She calls it the hamster wheel. And docs and nurses who were giving up hope, considering suicide, burning out, now have a safe haven called DPC. And there's about 20 to 30,000 white coats that have found direct as a refuge. And when I've asked maybe a dozen of them on this show, would you ever go back to legacy? They just literally laugh. I mean, that's a guaranteed laugh line to ask the doctor, you want to go back to abusive relationship. We're going to talk about that today too with our guest. So by limiting all the middlemen and most of the administrative burden tied to getting paid, the pay goes up, the aggravation goes down, exam time goes up, panels are cut in half and then half again. And everybody who jumps off that silly hamster will never wants to go back. So that's direct care, 25 million members strong, a third of which are getting it free. Five are national DPC firms we've interviewed on this show and 21 regional. The average NPS score of their consumers, we call them members, is 88 to 98% NPS. 95% of the employers that sign up with these national and regional firms are renewing, so they're happy. The one-on-one -on -one ROI hard costs and 10-to-1 soft costs is driving costs way down, so they're using this to fund things like college, Okay. And there's, as I said, 20 to 30,000 white coats, 640 surgery centers, 3,000 imaging centers, and wholesale pharmacies we've had on this show that sell generics at one to three pennies a pill. And specialists and labs, they all prefer cash pay.
So today we're going to fix the nursing shortage. <laughs> and we have exactly the right person who's their second time guest. I don't know if we have a bathrobe or a cigar or what we're going to give you, Rebecca. But uh, Rebecca's got a bit of a long bio, but it's really worth investing time in reading because um, she's a world beater. So Rebecca is an experienced nurse executive and is the first nurse featured on TED.com and recognized as one of the modern healthcare's most influential people in healthcare of 2022. Now, I could stop right there, but by day, she serves as the chief clinical officer of IntelliCare, an app-enabled workforce management platform to solve the nursing inefficiencies. Rebecca was also the first director of nurse innovation and entrepreneurship in the United States at the Northeastern School of Nursing. And this was an initiative that was founded basically to empower nurses as innovators and entrepreneurs, which led to her founding with some friends, Sanseal. She was his president of Sanseal, the Society of Nurse Scientists Innovation, pardon me, the Society of Nurse Scientists, Innovators, Entrepreneurs, and Leaders, a nonprofit that quickly attained recognition by the UN, has an affiliate member to the UN. See, it just keeps getting cooler, right? And Rebecca is also an experienced nurse entrepreneur. She founded HireNurses.com in 2013, sold it five years later, and she now serves as a managing director of U.S. markets for the acquisition company. She's co-chair and co-founder with our previous guest, Sharon Pierce, of the Commission for Nursing Reimbursement. And they are working with a really cool team they're putting together to respond to the nationwide concerns for nursing staffing shortages. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Ron, it's so good to be back, and thank you for having me. Yes. Um, any comments before we get on to this? You know, first of all, I just think it's brilliant the way that you summarized the the value of direct uh, pay models in healthcare and how it can be so disruptive. And I think that the conversation that we're going to have today, which is the link pin on healthcare gets delivered in many of our settings from hospitals to nursing homes and beyond, lies within the nursing workforce. And we're facing one of the worst crises that our country has ever seen. And I think fundamentally, there's a really interesting economic conversation that we're here to discuss, which is around the work that the commission is doing to try to stabilize the way the model is, was broken and the way that we're hoping that we can fix it so that healthcare can continue to do exactly what you're saying, which is have a multiplier effect on the society and the impacts that it has for families and others across our country. The, the couple of the most important initiatives y'all are going to be dealing with, I want to say for the end of the show, because it's kind of like the punchline, but I do want to talk about kind of what's led up to this. Is this nursing crash that we're seeing, I mean, we're talking about massive unionization and 99% votes to walk out of hospitals, which is scary, you know, for a patient and for that local community. But um, we're talking about, you know, massive burnout and massive disrespect for nursing. Is this a post-COVID hangover reverb? Is that what we're getting as an echo effect? Well, I think a lot of people think that it is a reverb. I think that nurses would tell you that for a very long time, we knew that this was coming. I think that the pandemic actually probably brought more nurses back to practice and try to drive sustainability. They felt valued. They felt seen. They felt appreciated for the work that they did. And then after the post-COVID era, the, tra the, the trauma and the stress that that had and the rollback of the programs that sort of elevated the nurse during that time and bringing us back into a failing model that was going on with regards to retention and investment in the nursing workforce was something that people would like to say COVID was the straw that broke the uh, camel's back, which I, I think that you could argue in some cases it was, but was something that has been well predicted within nursing uh, workforce for at least the last decade. So I think if you're asking if the pandemic had never happened, 
would we not be in the same place? I think the reality is we did see about 100,000 nurses step back from the bedside during that pandemic, which did accelerate. But I think that the numbers had already shown by the end of 2000, by 2030, they were already expecting a million nursing shortage, and it has just brought it up faster. So we're seeing that numbers hit actively now, as opposed to five years from now. Um, and I think that the idea, though, is that uh, now is the time for action. And the question is, is do we keep doing the same thing over and over again uh, and expect different results, which, as you know, is comes from Einstein. And it seems to be the way that sometimes we tackle problems. Or do we actually take this opportunity to do something radically different and create a more sustainable future? Okay, so Sharon brought up two cool ideas that uh, basically could solve this problem. And there's, I'm sure, others that will come out of this brain trust. But uh, one of them is either a CEO in a C-suite recognizes an employee as an investment or as a cost center, right? There's no in-between. It's not a gray area. You can't say, well, just my sales reps are you know, revenue generators and everybody else is a cost center. Everybody's either, you're, especially the frontline workers are either an investment or not. And that, are there any hospitals that are getting that right with nursing, looking at nurses as an investment and a cherished, valuable backbone? Well, I don't think that they are because fundamentally the model is broken, just as you're talking about. And the truth is it's, it's nurses are the only profession in all of healthcare that is actually a cost to healthcare systems that has no reimbursable service. So occupational therapists, respiratory therapists, um, you know, MRI techs, physicians, all of them um, have a billable service that when you have more of them, it adds cost, but it also adds revenue. Nursing within the model that currently exists today and has for the last hundred years, and happy to talk to you about the history of why that exists, is the only healthcare profession that is rolled into room rates and their services, therefore more nurses equal more costs without associated revenue lines. And from that perspective, nursing, there is always in a constant state of misalignment with the need for more nurses and all constant statement that there is no money for them. I'm going to put in the show notes, your, you want to fix a nursing shortage, change this 100-year-old policy that you wrote uh, gosh, you. back in July. I think it really summarizes the history of why we are where we are. Thank you, Ron. Um, yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit then about, um, are there any states that are getting this right with nursing ratios? Because that's the second big issue is, is a, I, I've been a waiter, and I know you cannot serve more than so many tables before everybody fails, meaning the employees, customers, the manager, everybody gets upset because you got too much going on. And the <laughs> same thing, I've worked in motels. And if you put too many uh, room service clerks, let's call them maids, I don't know. But if you put too many hospitality uh, ladies, uh, they got too many rooms, every room gets cleaned poorly. This yes. is the same with nursing. It's literally no different, right? Ron, that is exactly the situation. And you're absolutely hitting this right on the head. And so there are two states that have nurse to patient ratios, California, and everybody in the our country argues that you can't afford do, to do nurse to patient ratios. But actually what you find in California is that not only can you afford to do it, but your healthcare systems are actually more profitable by implementing nurse to patient ratios. Some of our most profitable hospitals in the entire country exist in California. Ratios that actually outcomes are shown to be substantially better in California than almost any other state in the country because of these nurse to patient ratios. So investing in ratios, as you just said, is good business sense and leads to better outcomes and actually higher private profitability. The next state that just approved ratios is the state of Oregon, and 17 other states have similar legislation in place to vote for nurse-to-patient ratios because nurses are finally saying, look, if you're not going to staff us safely, 
The truth is, is we are going to ask for this to be a mandated ratio per state to make it safe for us to practice. Um, but to that point, Ron, everybody says it was going to be financially devastating to healthcare systems. And then we've seen the exact opposite happen in California. You know what I thought you were going to say? I thought you were going to say something to the effect of what I saw in Becker's, which is nursing shortages are causing one in four unexpected hospital deaths or injuries caused because medical errors are going up because everybody's frantic and confused. Significantly. In fact, Ron, the other day I was on the phone with one of the largest reinsurers of all hospital systems in the country, and they were asking me if they should start rechanging their underwriting standards for their reinsurers to look at nurse-to-patient ratios as a factor in determining the levels of insurance that they are going to provide to hospitals. Because since the pandemic specifically, the number of incidences and harm in hospital has gone through the roof. Uh, failure to rescue cases, uh, wrong medications being delivered, poor outcomes being driven, they're all going up across the country. And now the insurance companies are starting to recognize there might be a problem here. Um, we, we are seeing that this is costing us significantly. And the truth is, is that should we be actually evaluating hospitals by their nurse to patient ratios as an underwriting standard? So I, I was super excited to hear them even considering that topic. And I think it is one that, um, you know, as you, you said earlier, right, it, depending on the, the dollars that are in healthcare and the way that things drive them, there is going to be, once you start dealing in dollars and cents when it comes around things like that, you're going to start to see changes within staffing. Okay, so let's say you're king for a queen for a day and you get a chance to uh, implement the, these two very important uh, blue ribbon panel suggestions y'all are going to come up with, which is, you know, maybe nationalize these ratios, number one, and then number two, consider investing in nurses as a coded item as opposed to a cost, right? So let's say you got those two fondest hopes with your new commission. Would that change everything? I, I think it would substantially change everything. Um, now, I'll be honest, the commission is not fighting for ratios at this point in time. We feel that ratios will come naturally because of being a reimbursement model where nurses are no longer cost. And I think fundamentally, the reality is, is what we're seeing is that hospitals right now, wait times are on the average of 19 hours across the country. To your point, uh, the significant number of patients that are now dying in hospitals because they are not having access to nursing care. We know that the one stabilizing force in healthcare is nurses. And that is why when you mentioned that hospitals, when they go on strike, they cannot function because there are no nurses. And the reality is, and I, I appreciate all of my colleagues who are with us in the hospitals, but the truth is, is that if there are no nurses, healthcare cannot operate and function. You can run a hospital without physicians. You can run a hospital without occupational therapies and physical therapists, but you simply cannot run a hospital without nurses. And fundamentally, this is a profession that if we don't invest in, uh, the reality is, is that healthcare will continue to be destabilized and people, more importantly, us as Americans will not be able to access healthcare in our most critical hours. You and know, Rutgers uh, is not an Ivy League, but they're pretty darn close to Ivy League. They're right brushing up against it. And when they suggested their medical students should become, you know, charge nurses and running the phones, the medical students basically said, do you want to run us all off? Are you kidding me? We can't do what nurses do. <laughs> Exactly. And I mean, it was just actually the same situation just happened at Robert Wood Johnson Hospital when the nurses went on strike. The head of the program tried to ask that the medical students would come in and serve to support, which caused an incredible backlash by the medical students to say, we are not nurses. It is not even within our scope. They have a specialized practice and we are not capable of operating in the form of nursing to offset the shortages of that you will experience in the strike. So they're just asking right. for volunteers. They didn't, you know, you didn't kind of force you to do it. Who wants to step up? Come on. Exactly. Look good on your resume. Okay. 
So what percentage of nurses are going to fall out by year five? Sharon, I think, said half or all nurses are going to fall out by year five because of burnout. Is that is that number still holding? Even more. So actually, so if you saw this from before the pandemic, 57% of new grads left the bedside within two years of practice prior to the pandemic. Since the pandemic, nurses with less than one year of experience are the nurses leaving the bedside at the highest demographic of all nurses in the country. In fact, the average length of experience now on a 12-hour shift on any hospital in the United States dropped from an average experience level of six years prior to the pandemic to 2.8 years of experience currently. And what that means for us is that not only have our most experienced nurses fled the bedside, but those that are staying are churning at such far rates that we have lost historical knowledge and experience by the bedside that is driving up the unsafe environments in which they are practicing and insurmountable. So I think the reality is, is that there's actually varying statistics on how bad the numbers are out there. But in the, the statements that are coming out by the most recent McKinsey report are showing that still over 30% of nurses plan to turn their jobs within the next year, which is substantially higher than it's been any time before in history. One of the other big statistics that just came out um, related to one of the reports showed also that over 200,000 nurses over the age of 65 have actually totally walked away from the profession. Um, why that is important to note is that uh, the average age of a nurse in this country is 54, so 50% of our nursing workforce was actually over the age of 50, 70% was over the age of 40. Um, and the challenge is, is that we don't know what to do with these novices at the bedside who are not staying. And largely, where has all the experience gone with healthcare and with the nurses that have left as well? And Sharon's point is very valid. Uh, and I think the reality is, is that those that are left with experience, if they are gone in the next five years, if those numbers specifically speak to nurses with greater than two years of experience, the level and the knowledge gap that's going to exist in this vacuum in healthcare along our nursing workforce is going to lead to insurmountable levels of risk and harm to our patients in ways that I don't think we've yet totally comprehended. There's a lot of discussion of AI in healthcare, and I think machines can do a lot. I think there's a lot of value there, but I think that the truth is, is that one thing that I was talking to a friend of mine who's the head of uh, Dragon Nuance in, in the nursing division, Mary Presti, and she said the one thing that we have not been able to algorithm out is the nursing workflow. She said, we've been able to do it for physician workflows. That's why we can have all of these virtual and uh, automated reporters, but we have not been able to figure out how AI can virtually replace the workflows of nurses because it is so unorthodox, the traditional ways that nurses work because patient status has changed so randomly and requires on the moment, uh, redivision of plans and, and, and uh, situations. I'm wondering how this plays out when you when you lose your gray hair in a profession. We have nothing in history that's even close to this, so we're not sure what this looks like. I know that I'm, I'm never a big, a big fan of big hospitals or big systems, but I know that the number three cause of death, if you believe Marty Macri and John Hopkins, is, is medical errors. Yes. But they still refer back to their 1970 and 80 studies that talk about there's eight or 10,000 people dying from medical errors, largely from hospitals, but it's closer to 220. And another study said, no, it's actually over 400. So, and, and these are, you know, large scale studies that, again, we never hear in the largest cause of death, medical errors is nowhere even in the top 50 because it's always, you know, the cancer, heart accidents, but medical errors is the real deal. And you know what else when nobody's talking about? Sepsis is the number one killer in hospitals in America. It's 300,000 people, 300,000 people are getting sepsis. Some of them are getting disabled from MRSA or C. diff, and their lives are never the same. We're talking about millions of people 
and then some of them just die and they they the cause of death is never registered as sepsis it's something else exactly. so they, the hospitals are really good if this gray hair goes away and there's more poor outcomes at telling a narrative that we still believe it's cancer cardio and cars that are killing people not hospitals Ron, you're hitting the nail on the head, and I think you're saying exactly what's true, is that the reality is, is that there is an underlying cause of death in many of these situations, but to your point, it's assigned through a narrative of the underlying disease state as opposed to the actual underlying cause. Marty McRae and his colleagues were absolutely risk takers within reporting the medical error study, which received, as you know, significant pushback within the uh, healthcare institutions across the United States. But for those that work on the front lines, you understand the risks that exist every single day, that a simple miss of a medication or a wrong medication that is given or a miss of a change in vital status uh, that lead to worsening outcomes for patients because there is simply a lack of ability to monitor uh, these patients and then more importantly, deliver the care that needs to happen within a timely fashion is absolutely what is critically killing patients in hospitals today. In fact, I think the more time you spend on LinkedIn, the more nurses that you follow, you realize that how many of them are leaving the bedside because of the near miss that they encountered? How many of them walked into a shift that they realized that likely somebody, they weren't able to do the work that they needed to do to keep patients alive, and they recognized that they had to leave? Because in the end of the day, if they did make a mistake, somebody was going to blame them for that mistake, not for the failure of the environment in which they put them in that was short-staffed or the inability to have the, the technologies or the supports that they needed to be effective. And Ron, I, I think we may have talked about the situation that happened around Redonda Vaught with the criminal prosecution that she went through in 2022, which shook many of us and hit the collective psyche of nursing, which I think is accelerating the leaving of the bedside. And this was a nurse who made a self-reported medical error that resulted in harm of, a, of death of a patient, that, and she was absolutely devastated by it. And she was criminally prosecuted for that self-reported medical error. Now, we don't do this to physicians. We don't do this to police officers. We don't do this to firefighters. But in this situation, this nurse was criminally prosecuted. And I believe, and was found guilty by a jury of her peers and was facing nine years of prison time. And I believe that that impact nursing, who all thought we all could have been her. We all have been in situations where we were floated to another floor, we were precepting a student, we were asked to get meds, the system was down, we did overrides in our, our Pixis system, and we've done this all because the truth is that there's never enough time to actually do what we need to, and we're always running short and being told to go faster and do more with less. And I think the impact of the Rondon Devot trial has hit nursing in a way also, that has left many of those experienced nurses in these environments to say it's not worth it, that we love our profession, we love taking care of patients, but the reality is, is that no job that you ever do when you do with your best intention is worth facing going to jail when you are trying to save somebody's life. And I, that's, to me, something that is also driving what is going on in healthcare and failing us today. Look, I, the thing that disturbed me the most about that, and I dug deep into that story when you start first started posting about it was that the hospital was basically, there was a non-finding. It's none of their systems that failed or their fail safes that didn't exist were even mentioned in this trial. The hospital threw her under the bus and basically said, go after that meat. We're not the meat that you want to attack. We're the biggest employer in town. Leave us alone. I it was it was shocking. There was such a failure. And I think that's why you saw so many nurses leave the, the, the hospital system and the amount of uh, national 
uh, fury that came out from nurses everywhere who said, if we allow this to happen here, if we allow to fail to be to be to not stand up and say this was wrong, that it was going to happen. And, and in fact, it has continued to happen. For example, the attorney general in Ohio criminally prosecuted over 100 nursing home workers for events that had happened for unintentional events in many of those situations that resulted in harm to patients, but did not prosecute one single nursing home owner at that same time. And I think fundamentally there is nursing realizes that they are becoming the catch-all for an entire crumbling healthcare system. And now we're not only being held responsible from a malpractice insurance that they could be sued and you know lose their livelihood and their nursing license and their job, but now they're being held responsible to the point of criminal prosecution for doing the best they can in an environment that is failing to staff nurses at a level that allows them to do their job safely. So um, fundamentally, uh, to me, the only way that we can solve this, Ron, and, and when you were talking with Sharon, is by recognizing that as long as nurses remain cost to healthcare systems, just as you said, we will de-invest in them and we will constantly staff them to the lowest cost denominator, which is not in the best interest of patient safety or outcomes in this country. And until we fix that economic model, as a friend of mine who sits on MedPAC says, if you change the reimbursement model, you will change behavior and you will be able to invest in nursing in a way that will create it to be safely done in hospitals. And to that point, at that level will drive inherently natural levels of safe staffing ratios that will make it safe for nurses to practice in these environments. All right, Rebecca, I have told you the story about my hair cutter. She's holding down three jobs right now to get her nursing degree. And her odds, based on what I've learned today, are less than 50-50, in fact, way less than 50-50, and 50, that she'll be around in two or three years. Um, what should I tell her, if anything at all? Because, I mean, this is not a sacrifice you're sacrificing your life right now she's not dating she don't have time for you know her life she's so busy earning enough to basically afford this school what do you tell somebody young and ambitious and you know idealistic idealistic so we're going to tell you two things or i think two clarifying factors um is she going for a bachelor's nursing program is she in a community college She's LPN going to RN. She's she's Fantastic. starting. Yeah. So the, the truth is, is that there is actually a very distinct distinction. Nurses who started as LPNs into RNs or associate degree persons through, through community college are staying at the bedside at significantly higher ratios than nurses who go into straight bachelor's degree programs. In fact, most bachelor's degree nurses exit the bedside at the highest rates of any nurses in the country, quickly returning to go back to grad school, um, probably for a number of reasons. From the cost that it is cost for a nursing school at many of our top 50 nursing schools, the cost of a nursing degree is over $250,000, which is shocking because they're entering into a capitated payment model. I don't think anybody recognizes that as a nurse, you're going to enter into a system that over 20 years, you are gone average, only going to increase your pay by 1.6% per year, which is less than half the cost of living adjustments over 20 years, at which point you will cap out your earning potential at your 20th year and never make a dollar more because you enter into this room rate model. So a lot of BSNs leave. So if I was looking at your individual that is an LPN to an RN, she's actually doing everything right. The LPN to an RN program, as though it is stressful, should not be as costly. And the truth is an associate degree, an RN degree, takes you into multiple of opportunities that lead you into a leadership path if you want to, but also a wide variety of settings to work as nurses. So the one thing that I can still say to you is, Ron, I strongly still believe that nursing is one of the greatest professions for anybody to embark on. 
It is still a broken model that needs to be fixed, and we need strong nurses to enter this profession who are going to fight for it because they believe in the future of this country in doing what is right for others, right? I wondered to myself, where would the world be without nurses? Who would take care of the ill and the infirmed and the sick and run to the car accidents, deal with the people that are injured in front of you on the streets? I, I wonder what would happen with that vacuum. So what I would say to her is we need to, but know that you are entering in at one of the greatest moments of inflection this profession has ever seen. Now, Nursing, a lot of credit has been given to Florence Nightingale, and in 1880s, she started to write in her journal that it was going to take 150 years for the world to recognize the kind of nursing that she envisioned for the profession. And if you add 1880 and 150, you get to the 2020s. So we're at this cusp where it's almost been foretold that there was going to be a moment of inflection for the nursing profession to either own what needs to happen to make this profession what it was envisioned to be or not. And I think that's why Sharon and I feel so strongly and are dedicating so much time to stabilize this because fundamentally we still believe that nursing is the greatest profession in the world because it is one of those truest professions that you cross the threshold every single day to sacrifice yourself in the interest of caring for somebody else. And that to me is a powerful place to be. So please tell your hairdresser that if she's mess entering at a messy time, but there is still going to be moments in that journey of hers and in that career of hers that are going to make you feel things. So Rebecca, let's talk about in a dream world when your commission makes its gold ribbon panel suggestions for basically this re- jiggering of compensation, rethinking of compensation. So it's not a cost, but a revenue source. What, who do you take that to? What, who, who takes that on and convinces CMS to change everything for coding? So I think it's going to be uh, the general public, but I also think it's going to be Congress. So the health uh, committee that is currently run by Bernie Sanders has a lot of oversight into this, which could actually direct CMMI, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, to do some experiments in this space. So the lot, the truth is, is that we're talking to treasurers, uh, attorney, uh, the treasurers of many of the states who are looking at what the healthcare costs within their state and cannot figure out what's happening in their systems to say, here is the model we're trying to educate them. But truthfully, I think the, the reality is, is that we need the health committee to orchestrate an investigation and experiments uh, into this to have CMMI run them and help us orchestrate a couple of these experiments to prove out the, that this model would effectively stabilize the nursing profession within our healthcare systems. Oh my God. Well, so you said one time that nursing is your hobby. It's your avocation, your profession, <laughs> you dream about it. I mean, everything you do is nursing. Are you going to be alive when that commission, when the, when those <laughs> experiments finally roll out and make, uh, you know, make themselves known? No, I hope so. I said to Sharon, uh, the last time we talked, I said, this is a five to 10 year commitment. Um, what you realize is when you're 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 young and ambitious, you realize you think everything happens quickly. And then you know this, Ron, as we get a little bit older and wiser, you realize the things that are meant to change take time and energy. And for really great things to happen, there needs to be a significant amount of energy. There's a significant amount of risk, and there's a significant amount of time that is needed to drive those changes. Hmm. So I think it's just uh, I. I believe it is going to happen um, because if we don't fix this, I, I think the the only solution 
that's going to happen in healthcare uh, is that we're, we're going to either outsource uh, nursing to the rest of the world because immigrants do the jobs that Americans don't want to do, which I, I believe is still a wonderful opportunity for nurses around the world. Don't get me wrong in that. And two, I believe we'll see a significant um, change within our delivery systems. And as you've said earlier on the show, just worsening outcomes. But the truth is, is we can change that. If we stabilize nursing, we can change everything and make the world better um, by, by delivering a better care model. Great way to close the show. So, Rebecca, how do people find you if they want to reach out? Uh, Ron, please have them contact me on LinkedIn, Rebecca Love Nursing. And of course, you can always reach me at IntelliCare, where I work and spend most of my time now during the day. So thank you so much, Ron. Good. And if you have a message for the world on flying a banner overhead, what would that message be? Oh, goodness gracious. Um, if I was going to uh, leave one message for the world, what would it be? You only get a banner. You get it behind yeah, so an airport. I would say, you know, um, invent, I would say invest in nursing. Okay, very good. Thank you, Rebecca. And we'll do this again in a few years. It's fun catching up with you. Thank you so much, Ron. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.